Thanks, Rob. Um, well, I'd like to start like everybody else and uh, thank Celia and Suzanne and Nicola and Robin for inviting me to this, uh, this rather wonderful meeting. I mean, it's, it's been excellent uh, so far. <laughs> um, and uh, having said that, uh, I just want to add another thing at the beginning, which is that really to uh, admit that I'm kind of taking a risk in, in the way I'm giving this particular talk, I think. I mean, most people who are used to hearing me talk over the last few years are expecting to hear quite a lot of experimental and other empirical details, a bit along the lines perhaps of the last talk we heard and some others. Um, but uh, what I'm going to do is try and talk about what I see as a kind of big picture. I think we've some, heard some of that uh, kind of talk uh, this morning, actually. But that's what I'm going to attempt to do. Uh, and therefore, I'm going to be painting with a broad brush, uh, you might say, and perhaps therefore not giving often a lot of the detail that might convince you of the assertion or the conclusion that I'm coming to. But So I'm going to skate over a lot. Uh, in that way. And I think that's a useful thing to do at this kind of meeting, because you, you're trying to put a lot together. That's what I, I've tried to do, but there's obviously a kind of downside of that, uh, as I've just mentioned. So uh, let me uh, leap into this um, and uh, start with the notion of the cognitive niche, which is probably familiar to some, perhaps many of you, but, but not all. Uh, it was due to John Tooby and Irvin DeVore in this chapter, The Reconstruction of Hominid Behavioral Evolution, through strategic modeling. And just as a quick aside, they were contrasting what they uh, described as strategic modeling with referential modeling, by which they meant the tendency uh, that one often sees in the literature to use perhaps one particular hunter-gatherer group, uh, like the Kum you're seeing here, um, as a model for the past, or if we're looking further back into the past, to use chimpanzees as a referential model for our, our, our ancestor. And there seem to be rather obvious uh, drawbacks and pitfalls in doing that. That, that single uh, instance might not be a good model for various reasons. What they advocated instead, this idea of strategic modeling, was to build much uh, larger scale models using much, much uh, greater variety of information and uh, come up with principles into which one might be able to slot the particular variables that might characterize early hominins and therefore come to some conclusions about how they live. One might be doing that for mating systems or something like that, uh, for example. Um, but the issue that they were addressing, really, and I just try to put it in what it seems like a perhaps rather glib sentence here, is the puzzle uh, of how puny apes became uh, big game hunters, and as I expressed it here, it's an evolutionary miracle, and you know, no more than anybody else am I turning to uh, intelligent design in talking about a miracle, just something that seems on first sight inherently uh, improbable, and yet it, it happened, and I'll just give you a couple of uh, pointers to how we can be pretty confident about that. Um, I think this is one of the really nice um, illustrations from the past uh, spears found in Germany in coal deposits. Uh, 40, um, 400,000 years ago. And these spears are, are wonderful things. They seem to be carved out of the middle of a, a sapling, I, th I think, using stone tools. Imagine doing that. I mean, they're very fine uh, weapons, as you can see. Two meters long, big, and the crucial thing, and you can see the size of them, that's a horse's skull. And the crucial thing about them was that the weight balance was about two-thirds of the way back. In other words, just what you find in a modern javelin, which is the shape they have, and you can see the, the point there. 
So not like the kind of spear you'd want if you were going to actually thrust it into a large mammal, probably, uh, but excellent for throwing. And when you've got such good evidence for weaponry like that, alongside a lot of evidence of butchery, then you're onto fairly strong uh, ideas that, yes, that far back, at least our ancestors were hunting, and that was a major way of life uh, with big game. And the next slide, I think, is a rather lurid reconstruction of what it might have been like, um, drawn from not so far from here, from... Um, Box Grove. Box Grove, thank you. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a lurid from a, a popular book, a lurid image from a popular book, but it's edited by or written by Chris Stringer, uh, eminent uh, person as he is, um, and therefore, uh, you know, accept it in, in that way. Um, and there you are, you know, not so far from here, half a million years ago or so, uh, an event like that reconstructed from the butchery and the kind of weaponry I've just been talking about. And evidence for butchery goes back yet further, uh, as, I mean, I'm not an expert in this area, but reading the evidence, there seems to be f fairly, fairly robust evidence from cut marks on bones, about 1.8, up to 1.8 million years ago, perhaps 2 million years, and recently, I think Kim mentioned this this morning, that there's even more ancient suggestions with, with evidence like these, these, these kind of cut marks uh, on bones. Of course, evidence for butchery isn't necessarily evidence for hunting. That's the controversy here. Maybe it was scavenging. I think there's all kinds of reasons why the scavenging hypothesis isn't very convincing. And so taking this as pretty solid figure of something like 400 or half a million years of hunting, possibly much longer, likely much longer, a million years. We're talking about a very long period. And in fact, if we look at the other end of it, I mean, it really only ended very recently. Um, so it seemed to have been pretty universal until a mere 10 to 12,000 years ago. You have evidence like this, archaeological evidence for hunting and gathering uh, going on, and then, uh, as it were, handing over to the early evidence, uh, archaeological evidence for farming and herding through uh, domesticated species. So you can see why it's sometimes said that the hunting and, and its assumed hunting and gathering way of life uh, may have characterized 99%, as it's sometimes said, of our, our recent evolutionary history. So um, the puzzle is, you know, how did this arise starting from a position of puny apes? And we've all seen these reconstructions of, of Lucy as little ape, or even if it wasn't such a little ape, as uh, <clears throat> the Pleistocene environment changed, areas opened up so that uh, early hominins were going out, leaving the safety of the trees. Um, <clears throat> they nevertheless uh, evolved um, to successfully compete with other large mammalian professional uh, predators. And so this would be the kind of uh, experience they might have in, uh, this is a baboon, not an ape, but the same kind of problem you could imagine. No trees around. You've got not only to negotiate not being caught by these predators, but the amazing thing, and, and that is where really uh, the alleged miracle at the bottom, to actually then come beat them at their own game. And there was a whole suite, a whole uh, uh, range of these large predators around at the time, dogs and large cats. There were saber big saber-toothed cats. And one can regard those as like um, professional predators. I mean, they've got big claws. Uh, big teeth, saber teeth sometimes, very fast quadrupedal animals like this. How incredible then that a little ape would go out and then make its way, as it were, as a hunter-gatherer. Um, and in fact, Rob, Pol Rob Foley's uh, written books, which I think very, very well set out that environment and why 
this would have been such a, an evolutionary miracle in that sense. Well, Tooby and uh, Devore's answer was that we did it by creating a particular kind of foraging niche, a cognitive foraging niche, drawing on lots of the things we've been hearing about at this meeting and the ones they illustrate here, intelligence, planning, technology, which they described as being used to mount evolutionary surprise attacks. And by that, what they were doing was contrasting this idea with what we're used to in the case of predator-prey arms races, where you know, the antelopes get faster, the, the predators get, get, get better at catching them, the antelopes get better at evading them. But that's all, of course, unfolding through slow, genetically-based uh, uh, evolutionary time, what humans are doing is acting as they were quick in these intelligent, planned, technologically uh, supported ways so that a poor old giraffe like this being hit by, in this case, a poison arrow, you know, stands very little chance or it's a long time before they're going to uh, evolve any defense against that uh, you know, if, if they can. That was the basic idea. Um, I think it seems a really quite powerful one, perhaps um, under-recognized uh, in, in subsequent literature. And you might say, well, could that be because, in fact, it's so good, it, it's obvious, it's almost a truism. I and mean, what else is a species that triples its brain size in less than two million years, something more intense and faster than any, almost any other evolutionary change going to be doing than inhabiting a cognitive niche? Um, however, what's important, I think, here is, is starting to specify the nature of, of that niche, um, what, what kind of ecology we're talking about adaptations to. Um, but I think that idea has some drawbacks or some limitations. One, you might think, is that, well, the idea of mounting evolutionary surprise attacks works, you know, if you're talking about outwitting animal prey. Um, but, of course, um, I mean, all, <coughs> or at least the most tropical and subtropical hunters are also hunter-gatherers. Gathering is really important, in fact, typically bringing in over half the calories. But are you really, you know, is someone like this really outwitting the berries? Um, perhaps it doesn't work so well for that, and we need to look more broadly. Although you could say, in fact, that um, uh, something like this, where a digging stick is being used to dig down a couple of feet and extract a really large subterranean a subterranean item like that is mounting a real surprise attack on that particular class of plant food. <clears throat> it's managed to bury itself nicely and deeply away from other predators like baboons who are in the dry season. Rob Barton and I used to study this, uh, going around uh, pick, uh, digging up corms, but they can't get at this. So the humans are creating this niche through cognitive means that goes beyond anything that other primates are doing. Still, I think this doesn't go far enough, and the essence of what I want to say uh, is this. which actually connects, I think, I didn't realize how, how, how well it would, um, with other talks we've heard this morning, starting with Kem and then really going on through the morning and indeed the afternoon, that this cognitive niche is much more essentially and importantly and interestingly a crucially socio-cultural uh, niche. And I've started <coughs> writing, this, uh, writing about this already in terms of what I call the hunter-gatherer deep social mind, which sounds a bit kind of new age, perhaps, but just a way of gathering together the notion that humans are in some ways more social than any other species. There, there was an ant, uh, a question asked this morning about well, what about ants and, and termites, and in a sense, I'm making the same point as could be made about them, as acting as a huge sort of group-level predator, but through cognitive means, which I think was the answer given to that question. 
And there are a number of pillars, as it were, or elements to this, and I'll just run through them. <clears throat> the key ones are five I'm going to talk about here. And this isn't the whole story, but the main parts of it. Cooperation and egalitarianism, which there are good uh, reasons, various evidence suggesting that those themselves <coughs> form um, kind of adaptive complex with the arrows that I'm going to put up here being reinforcing causal factors uh, in, in evolutionary terms. Then culture, for which you can read cumulative culture in, in the hominin case most crucially, mind reading, also known as theory of mind, and finally language. And I say that's not the whole picture, but I would submit that those are the main pillars we ought to be uh, talking about. And the effect is that the group, the hunting-gathering group, or band, acts as a hunting-gathering organism. And just to reiterate the point I meant a moment ago, that's sometimes said about these, these large social insect colonies, termites or ants. That's what they're able to do. Now, in talking about that and talking about it more, as I say, I may appear to be just waving my hands a lot and talking in very broad brush terms. So I just want to emphasize that uh, this is based on very rich sources of evidence, I think, from very different uh, kinds of sources. There's important paleoanthropological base, the bones and stones and other things like fire, uh, that's important to underwrite this. Um, molecular taxonomy, uh, <clears throat> giving us the, uh, the, the larger taxonomies we want uh, to be able to use other kinds of evidence, really. Um, Hunter-gatherer societies being important for the reasons I've explained, and in fact, a lot of what I want to talk about refers to hunter-gatherer societies, who, of course, form <clears throat> not such good models the further and further back one goes in evolutionary time. You know, are they good models of the level of hunting and gathering going on? Um, one reaches stages where brain size was much smaller. Um, but we're incredibly fortunate, I think, that we had, or sometimes have, so many of these hunting gathering societies that we can draw on. And it's important not to make that referential model mistake. So what David Erdl and I have done is surveyed the very rich ethnologies, um, ethnographies, I should say, of um, these peoples, often which, go, which often go back to the last century, and extract uh, answers to the particular uh, questions we're asking. And the answers are not necessarily there because the anthropologists weren't writing about what we're interested in, but often they were, and uh, so we're able to consult you know, database uh, like this. And some of the uh, generalizations I'll, I'll talk about are drawn from this. So this goes back a bit. Um, and then another source of evidence, non-human primates, very important, as you might guess, uh, for me. And again, way, different ways in which you, you can use those. One is, is um, in terms of phylogenies. Uh, we've got the old world monkeys and apes. If we just focus in on the great apes, most relevant to us. Um, well, just on the basis of the morphological similarities, as you know, we can make a pretty good reconstruction of you know, what our common ancestor with chimpanzees would have looked like, common ancestor with the other great apes. And really what I'm doing then is using similar kind of uh, process to try and reconstruct aspects of, of cognition. Um, and I think it was, was it Russell yesterday uh, talking about Daniel Hahn's work looking at uh, spatial cognition uh, using this similar kind of uh, principle. But we can also, oh, and yes, okay. And so I'm, what I'm going to suggest, in fact, is that if we do that in relation to all these major features I've talked about, um, we can make inferences 
about the origins of these <coughs> by uh, using that kind of uh, comparative approach and refer to all these features and how they are likely to have formed, as it were, basic, evolutionary bases out of which the more elaborate and refined and often very distinct uh, forms we see in hominins, the, the, the shape that those have taken. Um, primates and other species can be used in other ways, in fact, to, to, to create those kind of uh, strategic models that uh, um, uh, DeVore um, was talking about. Um, uh, for example, if one's interested in, in the evolution of teaching, then a, a wider behavioral ecology, I think, is telling us quite a lot nowadays. So there's the collection uh, that I'm mainly going to focus on, and I'm going to run through these very quickly, because for me, actually, I think the most new thinking refers to what we can now say about those primate origins of where these came from. So I'm just really going to sketch some of the, the characteristics of these, uh, very much focusing uh, initially on these hunter-gatherer societies, which seem to show these two uh, particular characteristics, egalitarianism defined in that way, and cooperation working together in multiple integrated ways beyond anything we see in non-human primates towards very important common uh, benefits. And we see that um, in terms of this, this notion of egalitarianism in a number of respects. I mean, one sees it in food sharing, as illustrated here in this Bushman camp, uh, even at the level of the monogamous pair, the married pair, who seem to characterize lots of hunter-gatherers. It's not necessarily the world's way, the world's way in which uh, people mate up, but in hunter-gatherers, it does seem to be the way. And what happens in them is that the males are typically going off hunting, the females, women, are typically going off gathering, coming back to the base, sharing the food, and that's really what works in, in this way of life. And sometimes those bands even split into, in the worst seasons, may even split into family groups, but still, this particular uh, pattern's there. More generally, a large proportion of the group is going to be typically fed uh, by uh, <coughs> the, the, the active uh, foragers, um, and that group can include very old people, uh, but children up into a very significant age, sometimes right into their teenage years. And things like a large carcass in particular is going to be shared across by all the group, and fundamental point, shared according to need. So these societies have sometimes been described by anthropologists, and all our work seems to support that as, as kind of like a primitive communist uh, organization where they're sharing uh, according to need. Um, and this slide here just illustrates you know, one of these analyses where David Erdl had trawled through all these ethnographies and the ones lit up in red are the ones which make statements supporting the, 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 the generalization I, I just made. Some of you, uh, Ken, Ken Binwell was mentioned by somebody yesterday, uh, an economist very interested in social contracts and the like, and when he read this, uh, he didn't believe us, basically. He said, no, I don't believe that you know, all these people were really like that, and he went back and read lots of these, and then came back and said, yeah, wow, that's amazing, but that's, that generalization seems to be true. And the ones marked with stars were actually the more quantitative ones we'd like to see, where people are actually weighing all this, this food coming in, the meat and so on, and then checking you know, at, at how it was being distributed, and they confirmed that conclusion. It's a fairly amazing conclusion. Um, but it's not quite as simple as that. I mean, it's not that people are just kind of <coughs> boldly um, generous in that, in that way. There's this very phenomenon of vigilant sharing going on, and one might imagine that you know, that's what this character is doing. There's a checking that things are being fairly distributed according to uh, everybody's needs. So those are great generalizations, but I think it, broadly they are um, supported. And they've spent to very different domains like political power, 
where it's often been uh, remarked that uh, anthropologists or uh, local politicians or something would go into uh, hunter-gatherer bands and say, so who, who, take us to your chief, your leader, and that there would be a kind of nonplussed uh, expression, lack of formal leaders or chiefs. However, various kinds of expertise to clearly earn respect, so people know who perhaps are the good hunters, who are the ones who've got good ideas about you know, when to move the camp and where to move it to next, and such things. But that doesn't lead you to become the chief. And in fact, then there's this interesting process whereby if, if individuals do from time to time try to, as it raise their position and claim some sort of um, right to be a chief or a leader or something, the others then, as it were, kind of gang up on them and um, put them down. A lot of this is done, as has been amply described by Chris Burm, um, through ridicule and making fun of them. So it's done at a sort of friendly uh, linguistic level. Um, and that's usually enough because it's really intense and, and repeated and so on. But it can, can uh, escalate to the point of physical violence or even being ejected rarely from group. And because of that, Chris Byrne called it reverse dominance. So it, those pressures are sufficient to actually throw out uh, someone who, who's trying to become a leader. Um, but the common thing that happens, which is why David Erdl and I uh, argued for calling it something among other counter-dominance, is really that through this ridicule and other kinds of processes, there's a levelling of the hierarchy so that there isn't a, a great rank order there. More generally, there's group-level decision-making, which sort of links well with what Chris uh, was just talking about uh, in the last talk, and that includes <coughs> group decision-making about all kinds of uh, activities, such as where to hunt tomorrow, where to go, where to gather. Um, uh, where to move the camp and when to move it and, and so on, with lots of information coming from different people who've been off in different directions, got dif different information, are sharing it, and then more than one individual being involved in, in, in the decision-making, apparently. Um, sex and reproduction, well, monogamy, one might say, also tends to level reproductive success. Um, okay, then there's cooperation, uh, taking many forms. Uh, just at the level of the pair bond, again, we've got that important division of labor, where the thing only works as a cooperative unit, with some going off to gather, some to hunt, and then share the, the, the proceeds. Hunting itself is typically a group, uh, a group activity, and there's verbal discussion. Well, there's the thing that Chris uh, was just referring to, the reading, that is actually reading those signs in the earth. And just another quick aside here, I mean, Celia was talking about reading on, on day one, and someone else was talking about reading literacy in another way. We tend to think that that's, that is something very recent, um, you know, with the invention of writing and so on. But really, these people really are reading kind of abstract signs in the ground which tell a very complicated story to them. I mean, they're amazing the information they can extract from these about the prey, what they're doing, where they've gone, um, and, and whether they should hunt them or not. Um, well, that's just an aside. But then there's other kinds of communication going on. Of course, there's verbal communication in, in that respect, but also nonverbal communication, quite a complex system of signs which have some you know, symbolic significance in this sense. I think this may be saying, I don't know, a giraffe or something. Again, quite a complex um, semantics and syntax e even here in terms of what can be communicated uh, about prey in, in different bands. And then another whole set of uh, levels of cooperation which I, I simply don't really have um, the time to go into. Rob, do you mind getting a glass of water? Go in there. Um, but cooperative searching, people fanning it out. Um, coordination at the kill. Again, you're just comparing this with anything you see in, in, let's say, chimpanzees who might hunt together as a band or lions. Thanks. Um, 
um, with uh, poison uh, arrow, people like these uh, uh, Bushmen people will gather there, and instead of actually, sometimes they may chase the prey, but quite often the prey's been wounded, they just sit and discuss what it all means, these arrows, the blood, where the animal's gone, how lame it is, and they may well decide to just let it go and go back to camp, and then come the next day, start the tracking again, and follow them. Uh, which is just an extremely different cognitive process than in anything you see in, say, lions or hunting uh, chimpanzees. They cooperate in the prey collection, then cutting it up, bringing it back, planning it, sitting the night before, discussing what, what to do, weapon preparation. Like these men have gone out together to dig up the little poison grubs that they then use to uh, put the poison on the arrows. Gathering, I think we, we seem to know much less about, and yet, as I say, it takes up just as much time. It's usually uh, a, more of a, a women's activity. Um, it, it's almost a crime, I would say, that you know, if all I've said is true, that hunter-gatherers are this important in understanding and helping us understand our evolutionary past, they have been studied by anthropologists, but they're usually interested in kinship systems and religion and stuff like that. Just the basic thing of foraging, you know, going out and gathering food. I'm sure we know more about foraging in chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, many primates, than we do, so far as I can tell, about uh, human hunter-gatherers in their gathering. But from the ethnographers, um, and so, uh, as I was saying, it was a crime. Psychologists have been, should have been there as well, I think. And if there are young people out there looking for PhDs to do, I very much advocate trying to understand cognition in such basic everyday things as gathering uh, in, in hunter-gatherer societies, which still do exist and, and do this a little. However, from the ethnographers, one gets the sense that, you know, as in hunting, uh, gathering is often a collective activity with a lot of information pooling, joint decision-making going on. And then there are interband relation cooperations as well, arranging marriages, sharing scarce resources, and so on. So that's all I'll say, a quick sort of skate through the major forms of cooperation and egalitarianism. Next one is culture. Well, <clears throat> as you know, you know, I, I could give another hour's lecture on, on culture. It's my, my favorite topic of the time. Um, but I'm not going to. We've heard quite a lot about culture, uh, cumulative culture, in, in talks particularly yesterday. And that's the essence of all I want to say for the moment, what's going on in, in uh, these human hunter-gatherer groups. The crucial thing seems to be, yes, cumulative culture. I mean, this is my favorite illustration of cumulative culture, because you know, there we've got a, like a two and a half million picture of uh, the evolution of the hammer stroke axe. Uh, but just let me give one example of, um, as well, one of the instances of this um, which feeds into the way in which hunter-gatherers successfully operate this, this socio-cognitive niche. Um, and that is starting off with, so this, this is the, uh, the finding of the poison grubs that Bushmen are using. Um, they're going and digging down you know, a couple of feet here. It's extraordinary that that's been discovered and you know, incorporated into this whole routine, looking for particular little cues on the surface that tell you, you know, this is the place to dig for the grubs, but then you have to go down a couple of feet using your digging sticks, extract them, um, and then very carefully the particular ways of extracting the poison. But that's not the end of it, because then uh, this man here is chewing up various kind of... Uh, uh, vegetable material which produces a gum, which combines with that, and then it's very carefully uh, put on particular parts of the arrow, the arrow itself being a three-part uh, structure such that the, the point breaks off uh, if, if they're successful into the animal and then the poison uh, does its work. And then it's baked in a particular way, as you can see, a very social activity. But just one instance of the whole cumulative 
process whereby then there is a, sex, a very successful evolutionary surprise attack made on uh, the unfortunate prey. So technology is important, uh, as it were, obviously, in that respect. And even the technology that's very uh, simple, um, I made the point about that earlier on, is absolutely crucial. The digging stick to actually extract subterranean foods seems simple, uh, and yet it, 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 it procures an enormous uh, foraging base. Uh, that isn't available to uh, non-human primates. And then the important thing also is, is this uh, carrying bag, which hunter-gatherers will gather all the materials in and then take them back to the camp, so that's crucial. And again, non-human primates will be, <coughs> to the extent they get anything like this, will then be consuming them uh, on the spot. Okay, next mind reading, uh, which again we've heard, uh, was alluded to um, in the meeting, uh, otherwise known as theory of mind, mentalizing, um, and I'm just going to make a couple of points about this, again, skating very quickly through this, uh, really to make the point, I think, that um, I mean, what this does, I think, in the, in the context of the whole system I'm talking about here, is provide an incredible interdigitation between minds, which supports the whole notion of, of the group as a hunting-gathering uh, organism. So just a couple of points about this is, well, the first one is um, that as theory of mind has been largely studied, I would say, it tends to focus on, just, on, focus on just a few mental states, really, sort of, obviously, most important has been false beliefs, um, but also things like knowing and seeing, but not a long list. And so I was like, rather like this um, illustration, but from Henry Wellman, of the way in which belief, desire, uh, reasoning works, but because under each of these headings are just some of the, the subtleties that we, in our everyday life and, and mind reading, do distinguish, and one could unpack those. Uh, there's a recent study I saw of basic emotions, which actually looking at the English terms for emotions and listing several hundred distinctions, subtle distinctions we make, which get built into the kind of um, mind reading we do, and one can extend these lists as well. The other side of this, uh, I think, is the embedding that goes on. Here's just that uh, you know, simple illustration, which is off, off, the, off the cover of um, my book there, where uh, this little chap is thinking he's going to steal her apple. She's one step ahead. She's realizing that he's thinking that, so she shifts her apple over here. But he's one step beyond that, and he's realizing that that's what she's thinking about, what the little lad's thinking, and so he sneakily uh, takes the apple. And I've always liked Dan Dennett's. In fact, one of the, the other talks just before this, someone again was giving, was it just your one last, where we, we had this unpacking of the, these levels in this similar kind of way. I always like this one from Dan Dennett, that I suspect that you wonder whether I realize how hard it is for you to be sure that you understand whether I mean to be saying that you can recognize that I can believe you to want me to explain that most of us can keep track of only about five or six orders under the best of conditions. And that was quite a prescient uh, sort of little phrase because uh, Robin and, and his group then came on later and empirically tested this, what level of embedding can people actually cope with before they lose it? And there I think the black bars are males and, and uh, the white bars are, are female participants uh, showing that yes, somewhere around five uh, or so seems to be beyond the level that most people lose it, although some people are in, handling incredible levels. Um, so, that's all I ever want to say about mind reading. No one studied mind reading much in hunter-gatherer groups, per se, although uh, there was um, one study looking at this crucial sort of uh, watershed as it's regarded as the kind of four or five-year-old watershed of understanding false beliefs in hunter-gatherer societies, and it came out, uh, as it were, just the same.
language. Um, I know less about. I've, I've done empirical research on all these these other other things, but not uh, language. But language uh, it seems as if it should be in there as a sort of major pillar of what's being talked about here. Um, and I haven't said too much about all, all these arrows. Um, <clears throat> there's various sort of reasons that are there, for, yes, really on the basis of reasoning and various kinds of uh, evidence. Um, and the interactions indicated, well, language uh, can play an important part in the transmission of culture. But of course, part of our culture is language, and children acquire uh, that through through culture, so there there are links uh, each way, and with mind reading, some of which I think you know were, were very uh, relevant in the last talk we had, um, and language supports the cooperation and egalitarianism in various ways, and so on. And there are two-way links between these. Um, <clears throat> recently, uh, just checking out the literature and sort of preparing this talk, I came across a paper by Stephen Pinker, which is one of the few that I found that actually do refer to the cognitive niche, and surprise, surprise, he includes language in there. In fact, when I saw it, it's this, this paper here, uh, the cognitive niche, co-evolution of intelligent sociality and language. And when I saw that, you can imagine, I thought, oh, damn, that's my he's probably done my talk, uh, done my, my paper for this. Uh, in fact, he hasn't. I mean, we, you can imagine we sort of converge on some notions here. But it's interesting that he, in thinking about the cognitive niche, is bringing in uh, sociality and specifically language. So I, I did a more systematic search for cognitive niche uh, using web of science and uh, found almost nothing, actually, in the titles. But interestingly, the one I did find, and I'm sure Lou Barrett will like this one, I'm sure you're a fan, um, Andy Clark, um, again, with those two terms in the title, cognitive niche and language. So one doesn't have to make a big case for saying, yes, that's surely all part of what I'm presenting there as <clears throat> um, an adaptive complex and uh, an answer <coughs> in, in the, um, the Tupi um, and Devore manner of how this miracle could have come about. So what I want to do, and what I think is, is uh, perhaps the more interesting and important um, and new thinking, because it's based on a lot of new data, is, well, what can we say about some of the evolutionary origins for these miracles? And the basic point there, I suppose, is that, well, they weren't a miracle that just came out of the blue. But one can uh, point to uh, foundations. For most of them, I'm not so sure about language. But I think more compellingly uh, for many of the other ones uh, by <coughs> comparative, comparative studies with non human primates. So looking at um, all of these, often using the same name, although, yes, that's an oversimplification. I mean, we should have cumulative culture here and just culture here, perhaps, for example. Okay, let's look at culture first, which is, uh, as you know, one of my favorite topics of the moment. And just to give some illustrations from our work with chimpanzees, uh, this is where Rob will get his <coughs> the image coming up, I think. Um, our studies of wild chimpanzees are uh, summarized in that diagram uh, for the long-term study sites. Um, and all I'm going to do now is not go into this in any detail because I think it is fairly well known. Some people here are sick of seeing it, no doubt. Um, the m two main conclusions of uh, relevance here, I think, are that what we're, uh, <coughs> what we're discovering there is multiple diverse traditions. In other words, based on lots of different kinds of behavior, food processing, tool use, various kinds of social behavior, grooming, styles, ways of dealing with the parasite when you groomed it off, uh, and courtship, and so on. And then a second conclusion that uh, communities have unique arrays of traditions, 
which are illustrated by the patterns that are, are, are colored here and lit up uh, compared to the ones that are, are dull. The problem with that is that it's difficult to be sure about how much social learning is involved and what kind of social learning is involved. Can chimpanzees really sustain these kind of cultures? So we have complemented these with experimental studies, which we're calling diffusion studies. And here's, uh, just, uh, here's the first illustration. The first way we tackle this, to take two chimpanzee groups who can't see each other, present them with the same task. So outside the, the mesh of their enclosure is this thing here with a nice grape here that they can't get. We take one chimpanzee out, show it how they can uh, remove the blockage using this uh, stick tool here. Um, on the other group, however, we take one individual out and show them a completely different way, which involves sticking the uh, tool in this hole here, pushing the blockage back so the grape rolls out. Uh, so two very different techniques. We then reunite each expert now with its group, allows others to watch it, and then we see if they spread. And essentially they did, but the, the, the result I'll show you, or the study I'll, I'll take you through just in a little more detail, is one where we had three groups who could all see their neighbors, another three groups who could see their neighbors, but not this other triplet. We take two uh, against the same task, but two different ways of doing this, opening this up here and stabbing the, 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 uh, the food in here, dates or grapes. Um, we introduce that to one individual who, who's over here, and we have a different technique here, raising this latch using a different, raising this hatch using a different kind of tool to push the grapes out here, um, and we introduce that here, and again, have just one individual we've shown how to do that. And then over here, if half the group get it, uh, manage to, to solve the task, we move it here so they can see, and then we see, does it pass along to them and to them, or does it get corrupted? So here's the uh, individual in one group, color-coded for what they're doing, and the, the first individual in the other one. And if we just run the first group, what we found is that, yes, these do transmit right across the group with pretty good fidelity, except here's one who uh, has worked out by themselves, having seen these do the other way, that they could do it the way in which this group are doing it. And you might predict, since that's the stabbing technique, perhaps a more, quote, chimpy kind of approach to this, that that might be what spreads, and so uh, the, the, the traditions aren't sustained. But the answer was that they were very well, so that this group here is completely cleaned up on how it started here and what was the majority along here, as for this. Um, there's the same results again, because the point I now want to make is that then we did it with a different task, which again, I won't go through in any detail what was involved, a complex two-step task, and you can see from uh, the color coding here um, uh, the difference here, and that spread across uh, the other two groups and, and kept pretty separate as well. And to that, we can add the results from our work at the Yerkes Center, where we used another uh, number of other kind of devices. Here's the pan pipes I showed earlier, with all one group doing the poking behavior, um, and this one starting off with the lift behavior, mostly doing lift, um, but then um, other kinds of behavior as well. But the, the tradition's largely being sustained. And that's the picture broadly, where we have what we're now calling cultures because they're made up of multiple traditions uh, which converges on what we were uh, concluding from the wild. <clears throat> so you can start to put um, conclusions like these into this kind of, of pattern uh, where for each of those two main features I talked about, 
Um, those are our conclusions about the shared features, which we then attribute to common ancestry. And here uh, is an attempt to express the, work, the gulf that yet remains in, obviously, what's distinctive in humans. And we can add to that various other characteristics, which I don't have time to run through. What I have done is distributed. You'll find bits of paper around. I'm not sure if there was enough for everybody, which showed the figure from uh, this paper that, that came out uh, recently, which summarizes uh, all this work. Um, and there's a second uh, whole kind of section in that to do with the contents of cultures, which I think interestingly and important includes an extensive toolkit and foraging techniques, for example. And then there's a whole series of elements in which I've distinguished different aspects of social learning processes, which again, I'm going to glide over and just point out that there are various relatively sophisticated copying techniques which permit the kind of transmission I just talked about. There's some sensitive to things like features of causal, and one might say psychological or aspects of the, the way actions are done, some evidence of conformity. Um, um, and this, uh, we're, perhaps, we're not going to call it meta-representation, but uh, chimpanzees, uh, in this case, understanding something about what it is to imitate so they can actually play this kind of Simon Says game. Okay, so that's my jump through culture. Then there's cooperation and egalitarianism. Well, again, most of this uh, I'm talking about is based on chimpanzees, so I'm really talking about uh, the sort of recent common ancestry uh, between ourselves and chimpanzees. Well, it's really <coughs> cooperative foraging uh, doesn't happen much in chimpanzees, but interestingly, it happens in the case of hunting, and it's really limited to hunting. At Thai, where we see most hunting, uh, Bursch has argued that cooperation is, is more organized. So one of the signs of that is they seem to announce their intention with a hunting bark so others can read what's going on and join in a hunt. And they also give a capture call. Groups are more successful than individuals. And according to Bush, individuals do take some roles. So there's a driver individuals and then others who are, as it were, in the backstop uh, positions and actually doing uh, the capture. And most interesting, perhaps males are involved, uh, who are involved in the hunt, are allowed most to share. So one's getting kind of, at least kind of pale shades of the kind of phenomena I was talking about in hunter-gatherers, of the link between egalitarianism, you couldn't call this quite egalitarianism, but a uh, link between uh, sharing and actual uh, involvement uh, in the hunt. Then, uh, well, there's, there's those other lethal raiding parties where chimpanzees join together to attack uh, neighboring groups. Um, which also have some of these features. Then political dynamics within the group, well, there are alliances, coalitions, which very much determine status in chimpanzees. It's not just a question of who's biggest and strongest. There's often a kingmaker individual, perhaps ranked third or fourth or lower down, who's critical in maintaining one of the two top ones in alpha rank, and that can switch around if they change their allegiance. And sometimes the wider groups involved. There's a nice illustration from Franz de Waal's Chimpanzee Politics book with uh, females and juveniles being able to, as it were, sort of gang up on the alpha male who's um, in a kind of difficult position at that point. So what I would argue is that there's a kind of basic level of counter-dominance there, where these individuals, by operating in these political ways, are able to um, uh, remove or, or um, have control over what happens at, at the top of the dominance ranking. In food sharing, apes show relatively little food sharing, uh, but meat, again, is interesting, is the most commonly shared chimpanzee food. And there's most sharing where there seems to be most carnivory in the, in the Thai forest. And that happens according to social ties, so males collaborate uh, in this way with, with males, and that's often the males who are their allies. 
And then there's new results, I think, which link with this new thinking from experimental studies, um, a lot of them coming from uh, the uh, Leipzig group. Um, studies, experimental studies now looking at altruistic helping, showing some similarities between human infants and young chimpanzees, although also a lot of differences, and so it goes on. Rob's been showing me uh, that um, I'm going to run it out of time, so I'm thinking, let me just assess where I am, and I'm going to have to um, skip some bits, even in the <laughs> kind of gallop I'm doing through this. Um, so... Okay, yeah, so one general point about this is that one might think from uh, at first sight that there is just this yawning gap between the kind of egalitarianism, generalized uh, food sharing that you see in hunter-gatherers and the, the Machiavellian primates, no generalized sharing, extremely hierarchical. But then when we add these features that we see in humans, I think that, that, that starts to close the gap. And from the other side, that sort of limited uh, counter-dominance we see in chimpanzees closes the gap. So that becomes more in, uh, easy to envisage a kind of spiral process where as individuals get larger brain, get more intelligent, more clever at their social maneuvering, the lower-ranking individuals um, can more and more keep that top one in place. And although there would be some sort of escalation in those social skills, escalate to a kind of ceiling, which is what we see in hunter-gatherers, where no one can really get, in a small band at least, can get, um, as it were, into those higher-ranked positions. So that's those features, um, which means that I've not got to the other two. So let me just see what I really want to say there, which is that, well, <clears throat> that, uh, that, in that period, 1997, we got that sort of summary from Mike Tomasello and Joseph Call. Uh, which differed from the interpretation of Dick Byrne and I looking at a lot of natural behavior that we thought was suggestive of, for example, in this uh, picture where this, this female spends 10 minutes edging into this position where she can groom this, this, this uh, young male here so that this one can't see what's going on, that there is some sort of understanding of the geometry of seeing in this case, and uh, sort of illustrated by that uh, diagram there. And since then, the Leipzig group themselves have done a whole series of experiments like these ones, where subordinate and dominant are in competition and released almost at the same time with this getting a, a, a chance to move faster. Where the food's hidden, uh, there's the difference in which one they choose, whereas when it's a transparent control test, uh, there isn't. So we get studies like this with Brian Hare. Conspecifics do know what conspecifics do and do not see. Then one on knowing, which is really remembering what others could see, one on attribution of intentions. And so a summary by Joseph and Mike a few years ago, does the chimpanzee have a theory of mind 30 years later? So a sort of analysis 30 years after David Premack and, and Guy Woodruff asked, does the chimpanzee have a theory of mind? Their conclusion is, well, now there is solid evidence from several different experimental paradigms. The chimpanzees, at least, understand the goals and intention of others. They went on to conclude, which I think is correct, that several studies have really uh, shown a failure despite that to understand, uh, to failure to understand false beliefs. So the conclusion they come to is that what one should describe in chimpanzees is something like a perception goal psychology. That's what they kind of understand about others, as opposed to the full-fledged human-like belief desire psychology. So that's mind reading and language. In a way, I'm quite happy to sort of miss out at the end because we've run out of time, uh, because <clears throat> I think apart from the fact I don't know that much about that, um, it seems to me this is the gulf that's the, the, the most difficult to, to really span by anything one can talk about that in non-human primates that was a very clear foundation for this still. 
However, um, I think it was Kim this morning mentioned the gestural, or in fact more than one paper, said that you know, gestural notions are coming to the fore. And there is an interesting, uh, um, yeah, there are interesting things about that. What I wanted to, to mention was that there are a series of other studies which I think um, suggest that, well, that perhaps that's premature to opt for a, a gestural uh, hypothesis. There are features um, uh, in chimpanzees' natural vocalizations that another group of primate researchers have been emphasizing the functional referentiality shown by playback experiments demonstrating that they can extract information from calls on things like the food quality being high or low, social roles, whether an individual is an aggressor or a victim in, in some fight that you can hear going on in the bushes, and even make judgments about the severity of attacks and, and take uh, account of that. And there's some evidence of modifiability, although primate vocalizations, largely species-specific, um, but some evidence for adjustment to closely match companions' calls and even some evidence of dialect differences between different groups. Um, and then most recently, coming onto this issue of not syntax, but at least combinatorial sequences, quite interesting research from Klaus Zub, my colleague Klaus Zuberbuhler's group, showing that uh, this in some species of monkey, and most recently now moving on to apes, and in bonobos, studied by Zana Clay, noting that bonobos produce five acoustically distinct call types when finding food, but they mix these together into longer call sequences. And this is really <laughs> Dr. Doolittle stuff, because, I mean, to you and I, this just sounds like a cacophony of squeaks and, and rubbish. Um, but they've managed to extract by careful analysis of what goes on, and then using playback experiments to test that when you look at the combinations, there is information being extracted, for example, about the quality of food. So this is real incredible detective work, I think. So I still wonder, well, how much else are they communicating to each other that we still have to uh, decode? Gestural communication, just last one. <laughs> um, my other colleague uh, in St. Andrews, Richard Byrne, has been focusing on this. Um, and some of the important uh, inferences here, I think, are that eight gestural repertoires seem to be a case where there's more, as it were, intentional control over what goes on. Um, and uh, that these gestures, more than the vocalizations, uh, can be judged to be intentional. And there's a lot of audience checking about whether your gestures have worked, waiting to see if that's, not the, if that's the case, if it's not shifting to some kind of persistence and, and flexibility in trying uh, other gestures, and quite significant repertoire sizes. I mean, they just published a paper, that's this one here, uh, reporting 66 different gesture types. Uh, in Bodongo, um, comparing it to, to these. And noting, noting there are some difference between these, which one might call, or they're, they're talking about, as dialect differences. So, um, that's my story. I think the main new thinking and new data, which I think is interesting in, in all this, is um, what I've been most recently talking about there, because there's new stuff uh, in each of these areas. But I think the global picture here is also one uh, I wanted to get out and put, uh, as it were, on the table uh, for, for this group, although what I wasn't anticipating was that Kim would have talked so much in a way that overlapped with this, which I think in, in a convergent way, um, as well as I think uh, what, what, uh, what you said this morning as well, some of that links with this. So perhaps if people are saying the same thing, uh, perhaps, as, as Uta said, in relation to Chris, or was it the other way around? Uh, perhaps it's true. Um, that's it.